Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone, we are now up to episode 18. Thank you for joining me today. First, I'd like to give some shout outs to our new Facebook group members. Hello to Brandy Jean, Bethany Adler, Kate Much and Lindley Jane. When you join the group, I will give you an early preview of the next episode before it's released and also some other information and photos of the stories that I discuss. So today, which country are we going to visit? Well, I thought we would go to the country of Nepal. Of course, Nepal is very familiar with Mount Everest, but here are some other pieces of information that you may not know about Nepal. Now, the Yeti, or the abominable snowman, you probably would have heard of him, but what you probably didn't know is that that legend came from Nepal, and I actually didn't even know that, so there you go. 75% of women and 55% of men have never drank alcohol in Nepal. The left hand should not be used to eat dinner. It's allowed to be used to wipe your bottom after you've gone to the toilet. Since cows are sacred in Nepal, so is their manure. It's common practice to clean the home with water and cow manure to clean and bless it at the same time. About 90% of marriages in Nepal are arranged and the bride and groom will usually not meet or see each other before the wedding day. Kissing in public also will get you arrested. So does that mean that when a couple has their wedding day that they're not allowed to kiss? If you're from Nepal, let me know. Let's now preview today's stories. The bad apple is called Fallen Angel. It came to be known as one of the most brutal crimes in Japan, but even more shocking was who committed the crime. The good apple is called Snatch and Grab. The teachers were involved in a life or death struggle. For this first story, I need to provide a warning that it deals with the murder of children and is extremely disturbing. The Bad Apple story took place in Japan in 1997. The story contains Japanese names and words, which I will do my best to pronounce, but my apologies in advance for any errors. I'd first like you to go back to your school days and recall when you walked through the school gates every day on the way to your class. Or you may be a parent who drops your child or children into their school every day. I'm asking you to think about this to set the context of what happened in this story. The murders in the story came to be known as one of the most gruesome that Japan had ever witnessed. But what made it more disturbing was who committed those murders, which will become clear shortly. It was May 27th. 1997, and many of the students at the Tainohata Elementary School 
were arriving at their school and walking through the school gates as they did every other day. The school was located in the city of Kobe, the sixth largest city in Japan. What confronted the students that day was the severed head of a person left on the school gate. It was later discovered to be the head of an 11-year-old boy called Jun Hase. He was a special education student who attended the school. His body was found at the back of the school. A note had been left in the boy's mouth and written in red pen was the following. This is the beginning of the game. Try to stop me if you can, you stupid police. I desperately want to see people die. It is a thrill for me to commit murder. A bloody judgment is needed for my many years of great bitterness. Days later, a letter was sent to a Japanese newspaper claiming responsibility for the murder. The 1400-word letter, also written in red ink, said the following. I am putting my life at stake for the sake of this game. If I'm caught, I'll probably be hanged. Police should be angrier and more tenacious in pursuing me. It's only when I kill that I am liberated from my constant hatred that I suffer and that I am able to attain peace. It is only when I give pain to people that I can ease my own pain. The letter also criticised the Japanese education system, stating, Compulsory education formed me into an invisible person. The killer had written a six-character name on his letters in Japanese, not his real name. The newspaper had misreported the name. The perpetrator contacted the newspaper, saying, From now on, if you misread my name or spoil my mood, I will kill three more vegetables a week. If you think I can only kill children, you are greatly mistaken. The reference to vegetables referred to people with developmental disabilities. As you will recall, the murdered boy June was a special education student. Earlier that year, a 10-year-old schoolgirl named Akaya Yamashita had also been murdered and another girl attacked and left badly injured. Therefore, authorities had the theory that there was a serial killer at large. A month after the murder of 11-year-old June, an arrest was made in the case. The killer turned out to be a 14-year-old boy. He confessed to the murder and also to the murder of the 10-year-old girl, plus assaults on three other girls. Before the arrest, the suspect was believed to be a man, so the announcement of the arrest of a 14-year-old boy shocked the nation. Television networks interrupted programs to broadcast a police news conference. A chief city official made this statement. I'm relieved that a suspect has been arrested, but mostly I'm surprised that he is a junior high student. The murderer had this to say after confessing to the murder of the 10-year-old girl. I carried out 
sacred experiments today to confirm how fragile human beings are. I brought the hammer down when the girl turned to face me. I think I hit her a few times, but I was too excited to remember. A week after the killing, he was having a conversation with his mother and she said, Poor girl, the girl attacked seems to have died. The boy said to himself, There is no sign of me being caught. I thank you, Bamoy Doi Kishkin, for this. Please continue to protect me. This Japanese word means God of death or death spirit. The boy was put on trial, and due to his age, his name was suppressed, and he was only referred to as Boy A. He was committed to a medical juvenile reformatory until his release on probation in 2004. When he turned 21, he was given full freedom in 2005. So, after his release, do you think he disappeared into obscurity, never to be heard of again? No, of course not. He reportedly set up his own website, although it couldn't be confirmed if it was done by the killer or someone else pretending to be him just to gain notoriety. There is a gallery section on the website with nude photos of a man wearing a mask and photos and drawings of slugs. And even more abhorrent, people could pay to subscribe to the content. I kid you not. People were able to contact him and he responded to questions and comments. He had this to say. Instead of a homepage where anyone can come and take a look like-heartedly, I established a new, different kind of place where a deeper exchange with the former boy A can happen, one that intertwines the antennas of the soul, which is possible. So it seems he continued to be self-absorbed and craved more public attention. And do you think that it ended there? No. Four years ago, in 2015, he released an autobiography. The Japanese Times described the book as follows. He expresses regret for his actions, but relates his actions in such detail that readers may be left wondering about his true feelings. He says as a teenager, he was an incorrigible sexual deviant who had taken grim satisfaction in dissecting animals and ultimately killing fellow human beings. The family of June Hase tried to block the book's release, saying in a statement, I don't know if the murderer of our child published this book to further extend our endless suffering. It shows he doesn't really feel bad about doing what he did. I wish this book would be pulled immediately and that no more copies be printed. But their wishes were not granted. The book had also been released by the publisher without notifying any of the families beforehand. The publisher made this statement. We have never had the opportunity to read the personal account of a juvenile criminal at this level. Although I understand this book will receive a great deal of criticism, I believe that the book details events that speak to issues of juvenile criminal accountability still relevant today. 
So in my opinion, this is just saying that it's a chance to make a lot of money. And in such a cruel action, the killer actually sent a copy of the book to the victim's families with an apology letter attached. The book was a bestseller. Although his name and whereabouts was protected, following the publication of the book, one brave newspaper released his real name and photo going against Japanese law. The cynical me would say the newspaper was only after publicity and revenue for itself. On the other hand, did they want to truly do the right thing and inform the public that this man was out there circulating amongst everyday people? I certainly hope so. And here is more bizarre information on this case. There are those who believed the killer was wrongly accused. A lawyer who deals with false accusation cases and the principal of the school that the killer attended both believed he was innocent and they cited the following evidence. Boy A was right-handed, but the police concluded the killer was left-handed. The killer's confession had absurd statements about things that would be impossible for a 14-year-old to do. And finally, the killer had bad school grades, yet his confession appeared to use complex language with the use of similes and elaborate speech. Hmm, you know, I guess there will always be those who want to defend the indefensible. In my opinion, this story is an example of an individual who clearly is not capable of rehabilitation. As you would know, I always like to focus on the victims in my podcast, but what struck me about this story is that it was difficult to find photos of the children or any information about them. Some of the articles didn't even have any photos at all. I don't know if this was because this is what the families requested. If so, then it would be totally understandable. If the killer hadn't been a juvenile, of course, his photo would have been plastered everywhere. I have talked in previous episodes about criminals profiting from their crimes, so I was interested in finding out more about this and whether there are any laws pertaining to this. I'm going to now discuss the Son of Sam law. This law came into effect in the US in the state of New York in 1977, and it was the first law of its type. It was named after the serial killer David Berkowitz, who used the name during his crime spree in the 1970s. There were fears that he would sell his story and therefore the law was enacted to prevent him from profiting from his crimes. The law was able to be successfully applied against various criminals, including the man who shot John Lennon. However, from its inception, it has gained many critics who argue it denies freedom of speech and therefore violates the First Amendment. One argument I read said that the law takes away financial incentive from criminals to tell their stories, stories which would be of vital public interest, such as the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Ten years after the law came into effect, a publishing company sued the state of New York to prevent the enforcement 
of the law to a book they were about to publish about an ex-mobster. The Supreme Court ruled in favour of the publisher. The book went on to be the basis for the film Goodfellas. The law was similarly overturned in other cases. Then after many revisions, a new Son of Sam law in New York came into effect in 2001. The law states that the victims of crime must be notified when a criminal receives more than $10,000 and they have the right to sue. The victims have access to a victim's crime board which acts on their behalf. In some cases, the law can also be extended to a criminal's family, neighbours and friends to prevent them from profiting from telling their story about their relationship to the person. While not all states in the US have Son of Sam laws, victims are able to pursue civil lawsuits for monetary damages. A well-known example of this was the family of Ron Goldman, who sued O.J. Simpson after he was acquitted of Goldman's murder. The Goldman family won a wrongful death claim for $30 million. They were also awarded the book rights to the book Simpson published about the murder. So now going back to Japan, the autobiography released by Boy A received a huge public backlash. It wasn't the first autobiography released by a murderer in Japan. You may recall the story I covered in episode 10 of the British woman Lindsay Hawker who was murdered in Japan. The murderer in this case also released an autobiography. The murder of 11-year-old June really struck a nerve in Japan with many calling for similar Son of Sam laws as those in the US. I did some research on the system in Japan and found that it does have a similar law, but it doesn't extend to completely banning a criminal's memoir. However, victims can sue offenders and seek their assets, including royalties from books published. But victims often have to go through years of protracted legal proceedings. So there have been calls to make the process easier and quicker for victims. So that's good to know. It does seem that they are heading in the right direction. So that's the end of the story. As you can see, that was a really, really tough one. And of course, I didn't go into the graphic details as I could have. The autobiography means that there are more details out there for anyone who may wish to find out more. So let's have a break now with some podcast recommendations, Morbidology and Oust Now. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using audio from 911 calls, interrogations, trial testimony and interviews, Morbidology takes a look at some of the most mysterious and disturbing crimes from all across the world. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. From shocking murders to missing children, we focus on a variety of cases and put you, the listener, right into the middle of the investigation. Listen to Morbidology now on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean and wherever else you get your podcasts.
This is Tanya. And I'm Janine. And we are your hosts at Ask Now. This podcast is about life experience. And we share all of our experiences and the experience of others to inspire people. And also to encourage others in knowing it will be okay. Go now and visit our website for full list of where you can listen at www.ousnow.com. Or you can always listen at anchor.fm forward slash ous. This is again anchor spelled A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M forward slash ous. And remember, it will be okay. Before we start this next story, I'd like to ask you about your occupation. When you are at work, do you ever worry about your personal safety while doing your work duties? You would probably answer yes to this if you are a policeman, a paramedic, or maybe a nurse. As a teacher, I have never been concerned about my personal safety. However, this story gives me a reminder that anything can happen in a school. This story is about teachers who were faced with a situation that they also probably never thought they would experience. The incident took place in Australia, in the city of Perth, which is on the west coast. It was a normal day at the school, until a woman carrying a 27 centimetre chopping knife enters a classroom and grabs one of the children. A quick-thinking teacher somehow manages to get the woman out of the classroom before any of the students even knew what was going on. She called for help while struggling with the woman. Another teacher arrived and also grabbed the woman. Then another two teachers arrived and one of them managed to grab the knife from the woman. They pinned her down and get this, such is the nature of teachers. They gave her a cushion to rest her head on until help arrived. Wow. One of the teachers alerted the admin and a lockdown was put in place. One of the teachers stated, the kids thought it was a drill and then it went on for too long. So we explained that there was a sick woman who needed help. None of the children even realised what had happened. The four teachers were recognised for their actions and awarded bravery medals. Their names are Catherine Hilda, Heather Louise King, Sally McAlpine and Joanne Urquhart. Joanne said, It is lovely to be recognised. I'm humbled. It is great to be able to rely on everyone you work with. A fellow teacher, Rosalie Michelle Braids, received a commendation for maintaining hold of the intruder during the incident. The medals were awarded by the Governor-General of Australia, Quentin Bryce, who said, The recipients had placed the safety and lives of others before their own. We are privileged to have such role models in our society. This story really brings to light that any teacher could be faced with a life-threatening situation and really shows the importance of lockdown drills. What I find amazing is that the students weren't even aware of what was going on. 
so credit goes to these ladies, who obviously remained calm and tried to diffuse the situation as best as possible. I also love how they said it was a sick person, rather than saying there was a person with a knife. Such true professionals. I really hope that if placed in a similar situation, that I would be able to react so well. So well done, ladies. If you are a teacher and you have been in a situation like this or similar, I would love to include your story in the podcast. So get in touch. And I'd also like to remind you to send me any other stories that you think would be good to cover on the podcast. I have already done a few suggestions from people. I can't guarantee that I will use your story, but of course, I will look at everything that people send. And just another reminder about the Christmas episode. I'd like to hear how you say Merry Christmas in your language. So go to any episode of the podcast and click where it says send voice message. I'd now like to give you a preview of episode 19. It's called Damn It and Bossy Boots. Here's a summary. The students were swimming in a dam on school camp. What happened? Have you ever had a bad boss? The teacher in this story did. So to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. What sculpture is to a block of marble, education is to a human soul. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple. The Yeti, or the abdominal, 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 (laughs) abominable, abdominal. (laughs) Let's go back and do that bit. Abominable, abominable snowman.